We're glad you're here this morning. A couple of things I just want to say out of the gate before we get into the passage today is that, you know, you need to pay careful attention to your email and even your text messaging in the next week or so because we have a big Sunday coming up in a couple of weeks and we're going to talk more about that. But it's going to be our Vision Sunday. It's going to be a Sunday we talk about where we've been, where we're at, and where we're going, where we think God wants us to go. And so we want you to make sure everybody's here that day. In fact, we are even trying to look at maybe a different venue that we can be in where both services can be together instead of us having two services so we can all be together together to celebrate that day. It's going to be a day that you will not want to miss. I can promise you that. So make sure as you get that information, put it on your counter. So Doug, I may have a trip planned. Cancel it. You need to be here that day. It's going to be a great day, all right? I did just say that, by the way, all right? So we, last week, we, or a couple weeks ago, we began in this series called Seven, where we're looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And I said it the first week, and I want to reiterate, and it's this truth, it's that these are seven real churches that have seven real struggles. I know some people look at these churches and go, maybe they're just allegory. Maybe they're just kind of hypotheticals. They are not. These are real churches with real issues. And I think it's so important for us to understand what those issues were and simply kind of look at our own life and go, can I relate to that? Can I relate to the struggles that these churches have gone through? And I think it's important for us to think about that in light of where we've come from the last 10 months, right? I mean, can we all agree that it's been a crazy 10 months, right? It's been nuts the last 10 months. And for many of us, you know, as we've gone through these 10 months, maybe we found ourselves kind of pushing the pause button a little bit and asking ourselves, okay, what do I really believe? What am I really going to stand for? And what is really passionate for me? What's something I'm super passionate about? Hopefully we've asked some of those hard questions. And so as we look at these churches, I think it's important to look at what are their issues and do we resonate with them? For example, the church of Ephesus, right? The church of Ephesus began with this, this sense of, you know, they forsook, they forsook something. You remember what they forsake? What, it said they had forsaken what? Their first love. It wasn't that they had lost their first love, but it's the idea that they had left their first love. And if you remember, they were doing all these great things for the Lord, but somewhere along the line, they drifted in their loyalty and their love for the Lord. And I think it's so important for us to look at the church of Ephesus and not look at them going, how dare they? How could they be like that? It's important for us to look at them going, we're not but a couple of decisions away from being in the same place they were, right? We're not that far away from a moment when we too can be just like those people in the church of Ephesus. We, we can do a lot of good stuff for the Lord, but if we're not careful, our heart, our mind, and everything about us can drift in our loyalty to the Lord. So do we resonate with the church of Ephesus? And then last week, Brian did, it, Brian did a great job talking about the church of Smyrna. And he talked about, it starts with the Lord Jesus speaking to the church of Smyrna. He says, I know what you're going through. I know the slander, the persecution, all the stuff you're going through. Well, why would Jesus say he knows it? Because Jesus experienced the same stuff, didn't he? Jesus went through all that. And if you look at the church of Smyrna, it's this idea of, okay, because I'm in it with you, because I share in these things with you, there's no reason to fear. There's no reason to let fear paralyze your life. There's no reason to let fear keep you from what God has for you. Because if we look at Jesus, we're reminded he has already gone through those things. And I think sometimes if we were honest and we looked at ourselves, we'd realize, okay, do I wrestle with fear in my life? And I don't want you to raise your hand, but maybe some of you do. Some of you look at your life and you let fear paralyze you. Our fear keep you from what God wants you to do. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is in it with us. He's for us. He's with us. And that he's willing to step in on our behalf at any time. And so are you, you, know, are you that person that's letting fear dictate your life? 
We have to ask ourselves that question. And then today we're going to look at the third church. It's the third church of Pergamum. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Revelation chapter 2. Now here's why asking these questions are so important. It's important for us to look at our own lives, but then to get our lives back on track. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I, I, one thing I love in life that I felt like the last 10 months was robbed of me is rhythm. Anybody else like that? I like rhythm. I like things to go the way I like them. I like them to go in order, and I like them to be the same weekend, and we got any other godly people in the room like me. Okay, great. So I like rhythm. And one thing the pandemic robbed us of was what? Rhythm. And I think sometimes in our life, we need to look at these churches and go, you know what? I can resonate with them, and I need to listen to what they're going through so that I can come back to the rhythm of being walking and, and walking and living for the Lord. And so we have to look at these questions. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 12, and one more time, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of reading God's Word. Chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, and it says this, And the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, talking about Jesus, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you didn't deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat the food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, what's the word? Therefore what? Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers or obeys. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God bless the reading of his word. Have a seat if you would. Now, as we look at this passage, I want to give you just a little bit of geographical background to the church of Pergamum because it's pertinent to the points that we're going to pull out of this. Pergamum was about 100 miles north of Ephesus. Remember, we started the church of Ephesus. Well, 100 miles north of that is Pergamum. Now, in between Pergamum and Ephesus was Smyrna. So you've got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, 100 miles north of Ephesus. Now, if you think about that, the reason I'm pointing that out is this, is because Pergamum was not a port city, meaning there was no trade that was going on in the city of Pergamum. Nobody was coming to the city because of trade routes. Like if you go to Ephesus, the city was filled with people. Why? Because there's trade everywhere. There was business. There was commerce. And so people came to Ephesus because they wanted to get in on the wealth there. But Pergamum, that wasn't the case. There was no trade there at all. However, Pergamum was labeled as one of the greatest cities all of Asia Minor. So out of all these cities, Pergamum was labeled as maybe the greatest city in all of Asia Minor. Here's why. Because they had a massive, massive library. Now, how many of you as kids remember going to the library? How many of you enjoyed going to the library? Yeah, I didn't either. Some of you put your hand down. I didn't, I didn't either. I mean, that wasn't my thing, right? And so they had this massive library. Now, to those cult, that culture today was a little different. Their libraries wasn't just filled with book after book after book, and they didn't have the, the Dewey Decimal System or now computers. I mean, they didn't have all that stuff. Their library was filled with culture and education. So the city of Pergamum was filled with people who wanted to be there because they wanted to be a part of the education system, and they wanted to get the culture of Asia Minor. And the best place to go 
was Pergamum. Kind of like Athens was during the times of Paul. They would all go to Athens. Well, now it's Pergamum. They all wanted to be there because of the education and because of the culture they would learn. But also Pergamum was a high traffic city because of another reason, and it was because of idolatry. There were more temples to foreign gods in Pergamum than anywhere else. In fact, they had temples built to Roman and Greek gods. I mean, if you, I was reading some historians, and they said this, that probably Pergamon was one of those places that if you were Christian there, that you could not escape the idolatry there. Like if you lived in Ephesus and you knew there was idolatry going on there, you could just go to the other side of the street, the other side of the town. You could somehow avoid it. But historians have said that there were so many idols and so many temples to false gods that it was everywhere in Pergamum that you couldn't walk the street and escape it at all. And they had temples, not just like small temples to like gods that nobody knew. They had these massive temples built to gods that were major, at least in Greek mythology. For example, they had a temple built for Dionysus. They had a temple built for Athena. Athena was the one who sprung from the head of Zeus in Greek mythology and was known as the woman of wisdom and the woman of war. And then they had a temple to Zeus, who was the head of all the Greek gods. But the greatest worship in Pergamum wasn't those things. It was emperor worship. They worshiped the emperor. So everywhere you went in Pergamum was wickedness and idolatry and people worshiping everything but Yahweh. And see, that is the tone that we need to understand this passage. Because listen, if you were a Christian in the church of Pergamum, called to be a beacon of light in a dark world, you were in the threshold and you were planted in a place of extreme wickedness. Now, I don't know about you, but let's be honest. Sometimes we have that gloom, despair party, you know, that pity party we always have, like the world we live in is so wicked and so terrible. And no doubt, is it wicked and terrible, the world we live in? Yes. But I would contend that none of us have ever been in a place where we were planted in a city or planted in a workplace that had all this idolatry around us that made it difficult to survive during the day. In fact, some historians would say that if you were a Christian that day, that your life was in jeopardy every single day. There was that many foreign gods. There was that many temples. And if you didn't want to worship their stuff, they didn't want you there. And your life was in jeopardy. I don't know about you, but when was the last time your life was in jeopardy for standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Most of you would say what? Never, right? So you have to understand, when we look at Pergamum, this is a church to live there and to be a beacon of light and a part of this church. Your life was in jeopardy every day that you could die. So in light of that, let's go through this church. And there's four things I want to point out. And much like we did in Ephesus, first of all, I want to start with the commendation, the how he commended them for some things. Look at me in verse 13 again. It says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny the faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, twice he says this phrase, where Satan what? Dwells. Now, you might wonder, okay, he said Satan's throne is there, and Satan dwells there. Is this place hell? Well, probably close as you're going to get to it on earth, it probably was. But he says, this is where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. Well, what are those references to? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it was a reference to the overwhelming amount of idolatry that was in that city. It was so bad and there were so many. The only conclusion the writer could, that Jesus could come to is it's a place where Satan dwells. It's a place where Satan's throne is established. But it also means something else. It implies something else. That it's this place in Pergamum that Satan has a stronghold in the city. 
that his satanic powers have a stronghold and everything that's going on in the city, that he is reigning and ruling and has a stronghold in the city of Pergamum. That's what Jesus is saying here. He said, that's where you live. <laughs> now, did you notice there he says, that's where you dwell? See, when you go to the book of uh, Acts chapter 17, when, when Paul's in Athens and sees all this idolatry, Paul's just passing through. Paul's waiting on his buddy Silas to show up so they can continue the missionary journey. So Paul's just passing through. The people of Pergamum aren't passing through. He says, I know where you dwell. You are a church that has been planted and you're living in the middle of some of the greatest wicked and ungodliness the world has ever seen. And that's where your church finds itself. And then he begins to commend them some things. And he says this. He commends them. He says, you have hold fast. You hold fast to my name. And you did not deny the faith. Now think about that. He says, in the face of all this idolatry, in the face of a place where Satan has a stronghold on the city, guess what? You stayed faithful, church. You stayed faithful. You held fast to my name. You didn't deny the faith. In spite of all that was going on around you, you stayed faithful. When you faced persecution and you went through suffering, you never, ever, ever deviated from the truth are from the core foundation of the truth of faith. You never deviated from the truth of faith, the faith that comes in the truth of the gospel. You never walked away from that. And he commends them for that. And then he also commends them for staying faithful when Antipas died. Now, we don't know a lot about this guy named Antipas, except what we hear in the scripture here, and historically, Antipas, most theologians would say, he was probably a leader in the church of Pergamum. Well, we know from the passages that he was one of God's witnesses, right? He was someone who was standing up for the gospel. He was someone who was waving the banner of Christ in a fallen city. And what happened to him because he stood up for Christ? Do you remember? What did it say happened to him? What happened? They killed him, right? He was martyred for his faith. He died for his faith. This guy standing up. And he says, listen, even when one of the church leaders who was standing for the gospel was killed for his faith, you still stayed faithful. Now think about it. If you lived in that time and in that setting, and one of your church leaders who you loved, adored, respected, and you followed the marching orders of that person who stood the faith and stood the test of time and was standing for their faith for the gospel, and they were killed, what would your fleshly thought that might pass through your mind? Hey, I'm going to Ephesus, right? I'm out of here. I mean, this person I love and adore that stood the faith, they stood for Christ, he's gone now. I'm not sure I want to stay any longer. But that's not the church. He says, I commend you because in the face of even Antipas dying, one of the church leaders, a faithful servant of mine, you guys stayed faithful. Now think about this. This is high praise coming from Jesus, right? Jesus speaking to his church, and this is high praise. And just think about it this way. Don't miss this. Wouldn't we like to hear the same high praise from Jesus ourselves? Wouldn't we like Jesus to show up on our doorstep and go, listen, in the world of wickedness with which you live, in the world where there's idolatry, yeah, they don't have the Buddhas and all that, but there's a lot of idolatry in the world we live in. In the world that you live in, that you, Doug, you, church, and call you by name, you, Tyler, you have stayed faithful. Even when other people were put to shame and persecuted and ridiculed and rebuked, no matter what, you stayed faithful. You lifted my name up and you clung to the faith that you have and you never deviated. Wouldn't you want that high praise? Sure you would. So this church, Jesus gives some of the highest praise to them because they lived in the most wicked city imaginable. And then that leads me to the second thing I want you to notice, and that's his concern for them. Even though there's commendation, there is a concern. Verse 14 says this, but, don't you love that word? It's like when you were dating, 
And she says, you know, I really like you. But we know what's coming next, right? Something with friends at the end, we're like, we're out, right? All the guys are like, I'm done with you. I mean, but is like a trans, it's a conjunction. It transitions the sentence. He's like, you're doing all these things great, but, right? Some of you that, I just, I hurt you. I reminded you of your dating and you still hurt from that. So I'm sorry about that, man, but I know that. So it says, he says here, verse 14, but I have a few things to hold against you. You have some who hold the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now here's his concern with them. He said, some of you, not all of you, because as a whole, as a church, they've been what? Faithful. They stood the test of time. But there's some of you who've given in to false teachings. There's some of you who've bought into bad theology. There's some of you who have let false doctrine infiltrate your heart and your mind. And he calls out two teachings in particular. One of the teachings of Balaam, and the next one is the Nicolaitans. Now, Balaam, you may remember him from the Old Testament. Balaam in the Old Testament basically was a prophet for hire. That's really what he did. He just kind of traveled around, and kings hired him to do things on their behalf. Well, the king Balak hired Balaam to go curse God's people Israel. He said, I want you to curse them, because if you curse them, then I can overtake them, and I can take all their stuff. Well, Balaam, through a series of events, which you can go back and read it in Numbers chapter 22, through a series of events, realized something really important. I can't curse Israel. When I think about all that God has done for them, when I think about how God has shown up in a powerful way for them, I can't curse them. But if I can't curse them, guess what? I'm going to try to corrupt them. So if I can't curse the people, because God showed up, I will just try to corrupt the people. Now, that's important. Here's why. I had an old preacher one time say this from the platform, and I've never forgotten. He said this, you know what? Some of you think that you're living life for the Lord, but if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And his point was, if he can't, if he can't do something against you, he will try to corrupt you. And for some of you, the corruption you're facing is the, is, the, is the world of busyness, and we'll talk about that maybe later time, right? Not today. But he says this, if I can't curse them, I'm going to corrupt them. So how do you try to corrupt them? He went to King Balak, and he said, listen, here's what I want to do. I want to encourage and I want to entice and I want to seduce the people of Israel to participate in eating meat offered to idols. Now, here's why that was important. If they eat meat offered to idols, guess what happens? Eventually they will do what? Worship the God for who that meat was sacrificed. And if they eventually worship the God who that meat was sacrificed, they will also engage and participate in the sexual morality that also goes around with the worship of those gods. So he said, I want to entice them and seduce them to eat this meat offered idol so they will engage in sexual morality and ultimately idolatry. That was Balaam's plan. Now listen, it worked. It worked. Go back and read it. Israel gave in. Israel compromised. And here was the compromise of Israel. Somewhere they bought into Balaam's philosophy that they could, they could participate in all this pagan events, all this idolatry, all this immorality, and they could still love and worship God. And God says, no, you can't. In fact, God shows up and kills 24,000 Israelites to remind them that you can't be a part of the world and love him at the same time. It just doesn't work that way. And so Jesus speaking to this church is letting them know, some of you are being faithful. Man, you're doing great. Some of you have bought a lie. And you think you can participate in all the worldliness around you and still worship me and still live for me? And I'm telling you, you can't. 
And that leads me to the second group. He talks about the Nicolaitans. We talked about them last week. The second philosophy, it's really similar to, to, to Balaam's philosophy. Nicolaitans were a group that kind of rose up out of the following guy by the name of Nicholas. Nicholas in Acts chapter 6 was a guy who was in food distribution for the church, and he became an apostate. He walked away from the faith, and he got into idolatry and immorality, and he was leading people to follow that same path. He said, listen, the two teachings that you guys are following, some of you are following, is teachings that are leading you down a path of idolatry and immorality, and you can't keep walking down those paths. Now, why is that important for us? Now, I'm not saying any of you have a little Buddha up in your house. I know that. But do we have idols in our life sometimes? Are we tempted to give in to immorality over and over and over again? Yes. This group of people, some compromise. And so here was the command. Third thing. Here's the command that Jesus gives them. Verse 16. It says this. We'll be on the screen. Therefore what? Come on, say it like you actually mean it. Therefore what? Repent. Repent. Now, listen. I, I just want to be honest. Here's the sermons I like preaching. You ready? The sermons where you come in and we're able to talk about maybe a struggle we've got in our life and talk, look at scripture and go, you know, I want you walking out feeling encouraged that, that you are a child of the Most High God, that you've been adopted, you're accepted, you're forgiven, you're loved, and that God can guide you and direct you and get you back and he can bring you back to the fold and you can walk. I mean, I love those kind of sermons where we talk about living in rhythm with the Lord and, and forgiveness and acceptance and restoration. As Elijah's, I love those messages and you probably do too. But sometimes we got to use this word. Repent. Now, I know when we say that, some of you are like, you have no right to say that. Why didn't Jesus say it? Or when we hear the word repent, we just want to bow up inside of us. But the word repent literally means this. It means a change of mind and a heart that leads to a change of direction and behavior. A change in mind and heart that leads to a change in direction and behavior. And so Jesus tells this church, for those that are participating, repent. Now, this word repent here is really directed not only to the people who've given into the false teaching, but it's also directed to the church. Now, follow me for a moment. For the people who are given into false teaching, the, the idea of repentance is, listen, you've been compromising your faith. You've been defaming the name of Jesus. So let there be a change of your mind and your heart so there can be a change of your direction and your behavior. So he's calling those individuals out. But listen, he's also calling the church out. He's saying, listen, this has invaded their lives. It's invading your church too. See, all of you probably know people in our church. Maybe you know somebody that's a great Bible teacher. Let's, let's, somebody name a great Bible teacher in our church. Anybody in a small group? Just tell me your small group leader's name. Don Jacobs. Okay, Don Jacobs. He loves the word of God. He teaches the word of God. But what would happen one day if Don Jacobs, you know what? I'm just not so sure that Adam Eve were real. I think maybe it was just more of an allegory. I think it doesn't really matter. And then next week he comes in and goes, you know, I'm not even sure that the word of God really is the word of God. It's a really good some suggestions to it, but I don't know that it really is the sole authority for how, I mean, listen, it was written 2,000 years ago, right? Surely it's not relevant today. Now, some of you, like your hairs just stood up on the back of your neck. I know that. And I know Don would never teach that, but here's my point. That's what was going on in the church. And so the call to repent was for the church going, you've got to deal with the hypocrisy, I mean, the heresy that's going on in your church. Because listen, if Don was teaching that in our church and I and the other deacons did not address that with Don, what would happen to our church? What would that teaching do to our church? It would be a virus that would ultimately what? Destroy us, right? It would destroy us. 
So he's calling the church out, not just the people to repent, but church, you need to repent. You've let this invade your home, your house, your church, and you need to do something about it. And if you don't, I'm coming soon and will war against them. Now, how many of you want to be warring against Jesus? But that's the consequence. He said, either repent, and if you don't, I'm going to come wage war against you. And then let me show you one more thing he says in the passage, and he gives the counsel to the church. Verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give him some hidden manna <coughs> and give him a white stone with a name, new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one <coughs> who receives it. Now, here's what he says. Listen, my call is to repent. And if you don't, I'm going to come wage war with you and against you. But if you do, Here's what's going to happen. Here's what I'm going to give you. And really a couple things. It says, first of all, you're going to receive hidden manna. And second of all, you're going to receive a white stone with a new name. Now, let me just tell you what that means. Manna in the Old Testament was a time and a season during Israel's history where they had no food and God provided manna from heaven. Do you remember that story? And what he's saying is, when you obey me and you repent and you come back to me, I'm going to bring provision to your life if you've never experienced before. I'm going to bring provision that is going to overwhelm you. I'm going to bless you like you can't even imagine. And then he says, I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name. Now, a white stone in that day in Roman culture was what they gave athletes who won events. They would give them a white stone, like almost a medallion to put around their neck. And he says, listen, if you obey me and you follow me and you repent, I'm going to reward you when you step into eternity. So what's he telling this church? Listen, you've got to repent. If you don't, I'm coming. Battle up, because I'm coming. But if you do, listen. I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to reward you. Had Jesus written this church off? No. Does Jesus write you and I off? Does he write us off? Aren't you thankful for that? See, when you look at this church, here's what I want us to gather. I want us to look at, okay, they were, they were doing some things really well. And they were staying faithful, but there were some who let the wrong doctrine, wrong theology invade their lives, which invaded the church, and the call was to repent. And if you do, blessing, provision. And if you don't, I'm going to deal with you harshly. Now, I think that's so important for us to look at this because if, if we were really honest, every one of us in this room, every single one of us wrestled with the same tension they wrestled with. You know what it is? The tension and the temptation to compromise. Every single one of us in this room every day are faced with things that can lead us down a path of compromising our faith, compromising our beliefs, and compromising our convictions. We live in a world that throws on us philosophies and ideologies. They try to get us to live in a way that's not in line with this book. Would you agree with that? Let me just give you a few of them. Some people would say, and I, you know, I don't want this to offend you, but I can back everything I'm about to say up with Scripture. Some people in the world would say, listen, if you as a believer... If you, a believer, want to stand for truth, and you stand up for truth, you are intolerant. So in other words, as a, as a believer, we can't say what the family is and what the family is not. We can't say that God created man and woman. You don't get to wait till you're eight to make that decision, that God created us that way, that he made us in the image of himself, that we can't, you know, if we stand up for truth, that we are, as a church, intolerant. So guess what? Just don't stand up. Isn't that the philosophy the world wants to say to us? Sure it is. And guess what? Here's what's said. Some people are what? buying it. Some people feel like we've got to hush our mouths because we don't think, listen, we can stand for truth and still do it in a way that is gracious, loving, caring, embracing, and, and bringing people to the Lord. We don't have to be on the mountainside 
throwing our Bible at people and, you know, casting, you know, you know, lighting. But I mean, that's not what I'm talking about. But we need to stand for truth or we're going to stand for nothing. That's what the world throws. And the world also throws at us this idea that you can love the world fully and love God fully. Right? How you can love God and still love the things of this world. And listen, if we were honest, this is probably the one thing that most of us are going to kind of find some issue with. Because we do love the things of the world. And we can love God and things of the world. But you know what? If you believe that, and the world's thrown that to you, and you really believe that, that is counter what John said in 1 John when he says, if you love the world and things in the world, the love of the Father is not in you. What's John saying? You can't love the world fully and love God fully. The world also says, hey, you can make money the priority of your life and God the priority of your life too. And Jesus says, you can't do that. You can't serve what? Two masters. You can't serve money and God. You're going to love one and hate the other. That's just the way it works. Then we got people in the world throwing this kind of ideology at us that, you know what? You tell me that your God is a loving God. You cannot tell me in good conscience that you're loving God if someone truly lives a good life and their good outweighs the bad that somehow they won't get in. Does the world not say that? Here's what's really sad. When I planted a church in 2010, I tried to read every article I could just because I was kind of geeked out that way about church growth and what people think and what people feel about that are in the church. And I came across an article. I can't remember if it was Barnard or Gallup, but somewhere in 2011, one of those two guys came out with a poll. They're the big pollsters in the Christian world. And they came out with a poll that said this, that they, that they polled 10,000 people. Now, who were those people? I don't know, because they sure didn't poll me. So I don't know that. I don't know where they polled them, but they polled 10,000 people, and here's what they concluded. 10,000 people that were evangelicals. 10,000 people that believed in Jesus. They said they go to church. They are faithful. Those kind of people, not just the Yahoo's of the world, but Christian people. And here's what they concluded. That 35 to 40% of them concluded this, that they weren't sure that you could not just be good and good enough to get into heaven. 35 to 40% believed that being good enough was good enough to get you in. So somewhere the world threw this philosophy at them, and they bought it. They bought into it and goes, yes. And then we've got a world that we live in that says simply this, that we're not sure that Jesus is the only way to God. We have so many religions in the world. You can't tell me, Doug, that Jesus is the only way. Well, I can't tell you, but Jesus did tell you. He said, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one, which in, in, in Greek really means, you know what? No one, no one comes to the Father except how? Through me. I am the only path. And so we have this world that's throwing these ideologies and these philosophies at us. And if we're, listen, if we are not careful, we are prone to compromise just like those in the church of Pergamum. We are. And listen, you can't close your house up. You can't bubble yourself out unless you're in a pandemic. You can't bubble yourself out of the voice of the world. You can't do that. You're in those workplaces. You're in those environments. You're in those social contexts. So what do we do from that? Well, we need to do a couple of things. If you're that believer in the room that says, you know what, I've allowed some of that wrong thinking, that wrong theology to come into my life. It's even shaped some of the way I feel. Here's what you need to do if that's you. You ready? Repent. Repent. Have a changed mind and a changed heart lead to a changed behavior and a changed direction. And then if you're like me and you're saying, okay, Doug, I, I, I haven't bought the philosophy of the world. I haven't bought the junk that they're throwing at me. What do I need to do? Here's what you need to do. You need to make a new commitment to the Lord. Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. In your heart is where faith happens. Conviction happens. All that happens. Trust happens. He said, above all else, guard 
protect, build a wall around your heart. So if you're a believer today, there's really two challenges I have for you. Number one, if you let that stuff in, would you repent today? It's not a bad word. Repenting just means, God, I was wrong. I was wrong. But I want to be back in rhythm with you. And if you're that believer says, Doug, I haven't let that stuff invade me, but I'm surrounded by it. Would you just make a commitment to renew your heart today? Say, Lord, would you help me guard my heart? Would you help me protect my heart from that evil? Or maybe you're here today and what you need to do more than anything else, you need to repent from the sin in your life. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. And you're walking in a line of eternity apart from him. And today, you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and turn back and give your life to him. And here's my, my prayer. Will we, from this side of the room to this, to front to back, starting with this guy, will we be faithful to respond as the Lord leads us? I believe, no matter who you are, you have one of those three decisions to make today. Either accept Christ, commit to guard your heart, or repent for letting those philosophies impact your life. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you right where you sit. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and just bow your heads right there. Every head bowed and every eye to be closed. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to ask you just for a moment to stay seated. Just a moment. Maybe if you want to come pray at the altar, you can do that. But maybe you just want to stay seated for a moment and just do business with God. Maybe in the quietness of this moment as the band leads us, you want to take a moment and say, Lord, I'm that guy that, that Doug talked about. I need to give my life to you, and I want to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I want to acknowledge that I believe Jesus down on the cross, and today I surrender my life to him. Maybe you need to take a moment and do that. Or maybe that believer that has allowed this stuff to come into our lives, and, and we've compromised, and, and we've got to say, Lord, today I want to take a stand against that. Today I want to repent and get back in rhythm with you. Or maybe some of you are like Doug and just say, Lord, I need to ask you to help me guard my heart every day. Guard my heart when I'm surrounded by philosophies that violate the teaching of your word. So wherever God will lead you today, would you just make that commitment just as you sit there? And then after you've done that, after you've done business with God, and as you feel led, I'd invite you to stand with us and worship. Lord, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for the power of your word. And God, in some ways, I so want to be like the church of Pergamum. I want to be a church that when I'm surrounded by wickedness and I'm surrounded by idolatry, that I stay faithful and I stay the course and I don't deviate from the truth of your faith, the faith I have in you. I don't deviate from the core principles of faith. Lord, I stay the course. But Lord, I know that there's times in our life that we can easily become like some of those in the church. Some of those who allowed wrong doctrine, bad theology to invade their heart and their life. And it led them down a path, Lord. And I pray that we would never be like those, but for those that are, Lord, that we would repent today and turn back to you. For those of us that haven't, Lord, that we'd ask you to protect and guard our hearts. Lord, my prayer is that in this moment and in this hour that we would be faithful to respond as we feel like you are leading us. So God, just have your way with us today. May we do business with you and then may we continue as we stand and we worship you. Lord, in your precious in your Holy Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stay seated for a moment. Just take a moment and do some business with God as the band leads us. And then as you feel led, you can stand and continue to worship with us.